You're listening to Your Words Unleashed podcast with host Dr. Leslie Wong, helping women scholars master their writing habits and publish a book that matters. Hi there, writers. How are you doing this week? I know that things are getting really crazy as we head towards the end of the year. We've hit that part of the semester where you don't have enough time to do any of your own work. A lot of my clients are rescheduling their sessions because they haven't been able to write anything new in a month. And of course, people are still experiencing existential worry about the state of the world, like I talked about in the last episode. So this week, I wanted to talk about something that's not going to take a lot of your emotional energy, but it's something that I believe is really an important part of good scholarly writing. And that is the power of storytelling. I first started thinking about this when I was a postdoctoral fellow at the University of British Columbia. My neighbor introduced me to his friend Joel Backin, who is a law professor at UBC. A few years earlier, he had published a well-received book called The Corporation, The Pathological Pursuit of Profit and Power, that was later turned into an award-winning documentary. And it was published with a trade press, but he still had a lot to tell me about scholarly book writing. I had just graduated after writing fully half of my dissertation in a three-month period. I was completely overwhelmed. I was teaching huge classes for the first time, living in a new country, trying to get a job, all in the midst of trying to figure out how to write my book. And I had no idea what the first step should be. This was the beginning of a long odyssey that eventually turned into my coaching work with Your Words Unleashed. I built this business to help people figure out their next steps, so they don't have to spend years soul-searching and feeling so much fear, dread, and confusion about their books. But at the time, that is what I was feeling. I was lost. So I asked Joel for advice on transforming my dissertation into something that people would want to read. And what he told me was, you have to tell good stories. You start with the story, and then you almost trick your audience into learning about theory, about history, about things that are much bigger. That conversation happened in 2010, and I've never forgotten it. Now I always tell my authors to keep in mind that what readers really want, even academic readers, is a good story. So today I'm going to talk about how you can harness the power of storytelling in your own writing, regardless of the subject matter. I'm also going to read a few pages from my first book to illustrate some of these points, and I'll give you some tips for how you can start incorporating storytelling into your writing in the most effective and enjoyable ways possible. You can find the full transcript of this episode at yourwordsunleashed.com slash 43. So let's get started. I've been reading a book called The Science of Storytelling, Why Stories Make Us Human and How to Tell Them Better, by journalist Will Storr. And it discusses the scientific reasons why our brains rely on stories to make sense of the world. Our brains are wired to be fascinated by other people and by what they're thinking and feeling. And at the same time, we're not very good at actually predicting what other people are thinking and feeling. And this becomes the source of both drama and comedy. It's the source of stories. The book talks about how our brains are always using stories to construct reality. He writes, The world we experience as out there is actually a reconstruction of reality that's built inside our heads. It's an act of creation by the storytelling brain. 
Essentially, he's saying that our brains are constantly telling us stories because that's how we make sense of the world. And if you've ever taken a sociology class, you understand that what we think of as reality is very much constructed. We give meaning to certain things and then act upon those meanings as if they're true to the point where they become reified as reality. So Storr has a few ideas about what makes a good story. The first one is that it starts with a specific moment of change. Something is happening, but we don't know yet what's going to unfold. People's curiosity is piqued, and they wonder why things are happening in that way and what's going to happen next. Another aspect of good storytelling is showing and not telling. We hear that a lot, right? But it's often hard to know what that actually means when it comes to scholarly writing. It really means being exceedingly detailed to allow readers to create the right picture in their minds. The goal is to create vivid scenes by including precise and specific descriptions and by evoking the senses. But these details also have to be meaningful. And I would take it one step further because he's mostly talking about fiction writing and with nonfiction and scholarly writing in particular, it's even more important that those details are meaningful to the overall claims of your chapter or your book. They're meaningful because they lead towards the take-home point and the primary contribution of the research. You have to be very intentional about the stories you include because you really only have the first couple of pages of each chapter to do so. Longer than that, and your audience will not be able to figure out what they're supposed to get from the story. So ultimately, you really need stories that raise themes and signal to the reader what is most important about your research. So next, I want to talk a little bit about what I think keeps a lot of scholarly authors from telling stories in their writing. The first one is that grad students are socialized to think that using jargon, dry prose, and massive numbers of in-text citations are part of doing good research. Basically, writing in a way that totally turns off non-experts becomes part of proving your worth to a scholarly audience. And I think that through this socialization process, we lose touch with what we found most fascinating about this material in the first place. And then it becomes even harder to convey to an audience why they should think it's important and fascinating as well. The second reason is that some academic authors might believe that it's not scholarly to tell stories, that it's not objective enough or scientific enough. Basically, that it's just not within the realm of what other experts would deem to be rigorous research. But the truth is that when you write a book, even one that's based on research with an evidence-based argument, you're the narrator, right? You are the interpreter of everything that's going on. There are so many books out there where people try to remove themselves completely as if they're like hovering above what's happening. And it just doesn't work. It's also way more boring to read. And so we need to recognize that everything is subjective and see that as a good thing. I think the third reason scholarly authors shy away from telling stories is that they don't feel comfortable making themselves an actual character in the narrative. So I'll read book chapters where the author is trying to tell stories, but they are nowhere to be found. They're trying to have as minimal impact on the story as possible. And this doesn't make a lot of sense, especially if it was ethnographic work or participant observation. 
I mean, if you were interacting with other people and with the environment, then why wouldn't you put yourself into this story? If you do, though, you have to choose how you want to present yourself. So that means potentially revealing your own thoughts and opinions. And with that also comes the fear of visibility. Especially for first-time authors, it's already hard enough to put yourself out there and have your work be seen and judged on a much larger scale. And when you put yourself into your story, you're taking readers into your mind, your life, and your experiences. You have to let people in to knowing more about you as a person. And so if you're in a place where you feel fear or shame or dread about your book, it can be very difficult to think about making yourself even more visible. And some authors worry about how reviewers will react to a storytelling style. So to assuage your concerns, one of my clients just received reviews from her dream press about her manuscript, which leans heavily on stories. And here's what one reviewer said. The prose is beautiful, clear, and accessible. I really like how the author inserts herself into her book and writes about her own struggles. Her personal experiences are a powerful point of entry into the subject. And of course, this client also received a contract. So now I'm going to do something that I've never done on a podcast, which is actually read from one of my books. I'm going to spend the next six or seven minutes reading the opening pages of my first book, which was called Outsourced Children, Orphanage Care and Adoption in Globalizing China. This was based on my dissertation research. I spent a number of years doing fieldwork in China, where I served as a volunteer with different Western non-governmental organizations that assisted the Chinese state in taking care of abandoned children. And I'll just preface this by saying, I started my research thinking that when I went into these orphanages, I was going to find all these healthy girls, because those were the kids who were being adopted out to the United States and other Western countries at the time. And what I found instead was orphanages that were filled with special needs children, most of whom were boys. The healthy girls were being adopted out while the special needs kids were staying behind, but all kinds of Western resources were flowing in to help take care of them. And it just raised all of these new questions for me that I tried to answer in the book. So when I was thinking about an opening story, I decided to make myself a central character as a proxy for the reader. And I created other characters as well, so the two children you're going to hear about appear in different parts of the book. And I had to choose specific incidents that would lead directly into the major themes and questions of the book. I wrote many, many different vignettes, some of which went into different chapters and some that didn't get used at all. But I settled on this opening story because it really got to the heart of what I was trying to say. So here we go. At the end of a freezing cold January day in 2007, I made my first visit to the infant hospice unit at the Haifeng Children's Welfare Institute, or CWI. These are all pseudonyms, by the way. My breath escaped in white puffs as I ventured tentatively down the dark, unheated hallways of the large Chinese state-run orphanage. I had just begun serving as a full-time volunteer for Tomorrow's Children, a Western faith-based organization that provided medical care to abandoned special needs youth. The group had recently opened a large infant hospice, which occupied one full floor of the CWI, a quote-unquote model orphanage located in Henan province in central China. 
Tomorrow's Children used first-world medical practices to care for the institution's most disabled and ill babies and toddlers until they passed away. Many infants survived and after rehabilitation were returned to the regular state facility, sent out to local foster care, or occasionally even adopted internationally. I was there to pick up Emma, one of the unit's young residents. A happy one-year-old girl with a severe bowl haircut, Emma suffered from a rare childhood cancer that had claimed the sight in her left eye. The aggressive disease was threatening her vision in the other eye and possibly even her life. Although it was impossible to know for certain, this illness was most likely the reason she was cast out of her family. As part of my volunteering duties for tomorrow's children, I was given the task of escorting Emma to Beijing on an overnight train. From there, she would fly to Hong Kong for immediate surgery and chemotherapy. I soon found myself standing nervously on a dark, crowded train platform holding the girl in my arms. Her urgent medical situation filled me with fear, but Emma had the energy of a healthy, rambunctious toddler. She attempted to squirm out of my grasp as several old men rolled past with rattling metal carts, loudly hawking a diverse array of instant noodles, red cellophane-wrapped sausages, and cheap cigarettes. It was late at night when we boarded the train, settling into the bottom bunk of a dimly lit soft sleeper car filled with businessmen. Emma bounced up and down on the bed and babbled cheerfully as the men snored noisily overhead. Burdened with an overwhelming sense of responsibility, I lay awake anxiously the entire night, terrified to let her out of my sight. When we reached Beijing the following morning, I passed the girl to an American volunteer waiting at the station and heaved an enormous sigh of relief. Emma spent the next two years in Hong Kong undergoing multiple costly procedures to save her young life. Through the organization's monthly online newsletters, I learned that her cloudy left eye was removed and that she underwent chemotherapy, laser treatment, and radiation to maintain vision on the other side. In 2009, the group asked its foreign funders for 20,000 US dollars in donations to cover Emma's latest course of radiation treatment. Against tremendous odds, the child's cancer went into total remission, and she returned to the Tomorrow's Children main foster home near Beijing. Then, at the age of four, she was adopted by an American family. Emma's uplifting journey of rescue and redemption through international adoption is the type of feel-good story that's often featured in the Western media. However, the positive outcome she enjoyed is rare among abandoned disabled youth. More common are the situations faced by children like Henry, another memorable resident of the Tomorrow's Children's Special Care Unit. Born with severe cerebral palsy, Henry was stick-thin, ghostly pale, and nearly catatonic when he first arrived. His dull eyes lacked any sign of awareness even when you peered directly into them. Without a birth certificate or other identifying information, the doctor estimated that Henry was roughly six years old. Yet after only a few weeks of a specialized nutrition and medical regimen, the boy doubled in weight and grew six inches in height, shocking everyone with his transformation. Facial hair began sprouting from his chin, making clear that he was in fact a teenager. As Henry's physical health continued to rapidly improve, he blossomed into an intelligent and perceptive adolescent. His Chinese caregiver, or Ai, used physical therapy techniques learned from a Western volunteer to stretch his stiff limbs and teach him to grasp objects. After several months of being nursed back to health, 
Henry's hunger for mental stimulation became a source of frustration within his confined surroundings. When volunteers entered the room, he howled loudly. Using pleading eye contact, he asked to be taken outside in his wheelchair. His IE believed that he was demanding too much of her time, as she also had two other high-needs children in her care, and seized his physical therapy. Instead, he was placed in front of the television for hours on end with his back facing the rest of the room. And with only three volunteers tending to more than 40 children, it was impossible to give Henry the individual attention he craved. In desperation, the boy began to bite his own hands, drawing blood on several occasions. Volunteers attempted to provide him with more one-on-one time, but their efforts could only provide temporary relief. Both of these children were likely cast out of their families due to their costly, life-threatening illnesses. They then embarked on an odyssey of care and rehabilitation within state-run orphanages, and their lives were totally transformed by an intricate set of collaborations between the Chinese government, their official guardian, and the international humanitarian aid groups that assumed full responsibility for their well-being. Within four short years, the vast emotional, medical, and financial resources of global child savers remade Emma into a desirable Western adoptee, transporting her from the very bottom of Chinese society to the top of global society. By contrast, Henry's severe disabilities and long-term dependency limited his chances of adoption. Nonetheless, even though he remained institutionalized, the first world care and resources he received also remade him into a very different kind of person than he would have otherwise been. A complex global migration of children is carving an indelible circuit between China and the industrialized world. Since the 1990s, intensive Western investment into certain highly marginalized youth living in the People's Republic of China, or the PRC, has been a phenomenon that would have been unimaginable only a few decades earlier when the nation was inaccessible to the outside world. This new predicament raises a number of questions. First, in this time of unprecedented prosperity, why have many Chinese parents abandoned their children to state care? Why have Chinese state authorities allowed foreign humanitarian non-governmental organizations or NGOs, whose intentions are often viewed with deep distrust, to become so enmeshed in their nation's child welfare system? And finally, what is the relationship between the international adoption of Chinese children to countries in the global north and the involvement of Western NGOs in domestic state-run orphanages? The trajectories that Emma and Henry embarked on could not have been more different. Nonetheless, both children participated in the dynamics of what I term outsourced intimacy, the process by which the Chinese state has outsourced the care of locally devalued children to Westerners, who, using their own resources, remake them into global citizens. This book highlights the two main ways that outsourced intimacy has operated as an ongoing transnational exchange. First, through the exportation of mostly healthy girls into Western homes via adoption, and second, through the subsequent importation of first world actors, resources, and practices into orphanages to care for the mostly special needs youth left behind. You can see that I was really trying to be specific to include my own perspective as an outsider and also to lead into the major questions and claims of the book. And if you're interested in reading the entire introduction chapter, check the episode page for a link to a free download. 
So finally, I want to end by giving a couple of tips for writing good analytical stories or vignettes. And I think you can do this regardless of the type of research you do. In fact, my second book was not ethnographic at all. It was based on interviews. So I started with a story from my own life. I've even worked with scientists who study insects. And they tell captivating stories from their fieldwork. So my first tip is to think of three moments from your research that stand out the most to you. And then quickly write one page about each of them. When you're writing, keep a few things in mind. Get as specific as you can. Remember to show and not tell. Never forget that you're the eyes, the ears, the nose, etc. of the reader. So you need to vividly reconstruct the scene. I think many good stories come from the very first time you stepped into a location and writing from the perspective of a newcomer. Again, it's documenting a moment of change. So let yourself be creative. Embrace the freedom that comes from creating a different world for others to experience. Step two is to take a few days away and then come back to these initial vignettes. Reread them and think about which one might get at the primary themes of your research. Does one of them seem like it's pointing an arrow towards your findings or the argument? Some vignettes are more able to do that, whereas others are just really good stories that you can perhaps incorporate elsewhere. But the best story to start off a book is one that alludes to what you want the reader to ultimately take away from your research. So let's sum everything up. For me, creative nonfiction has always been the most enjoyable and easiest kind of writing. And I think that's probably also the case for many of you, because academic writing truly does not come naturally to anyone. I know very few people who prefer to do academic writing or, you know, think of it as a source of great joy. Not only is telling stories a way to tap into creativity and imagination, you can also use it to help you think through tough concepts, to figure out your argument and connect the dots in your research. The power of storytelling lies in making your ideas accessible to a wider audience and keeping them engaged all the way through. Stories keep readers turning pages while also helping them understand key concepts, theories, and findings. The implications of your research are clearer. They're more understandable. They become memorable. And finally, they foster a deeper emotional connection with readers as they relate to your topic and to you on a more personal level. So don't forget, what everyone really wants is a good story. I'll talk to you next time. Thanks for tuning in to Your Words Unleashed podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with other writers or leave a rating and review. To find the full transcript and catch all the latest from me, check out my website, yourwordsunleashed.com. I'll talk to you next time. Happy writing. Happy writing.